This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep. There's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Sarah Rigby, online staff writer. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Steele, author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. He studied for a PhD in physics at the University of Oxford before switching fields to computational biology. He tells me everything I need to know about the science of ageing, including the species that don't seem to age at all. So first of all, could you please just tell us a bit about your book? My book's called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old, and it's asking us to reimagine the ageing process. I think it's something that a lot of us think is just a natural, inevitable part of being alive. But in the book, I characterise it as our greatest humanitarian challenge. Now, that might sound like a slightly strange thing to say, but actually, if you look at the sort of biology of this, ageing is behind all of the biggest killers in the modern world. Things like cancer, heart disease, stroke, dementia. These are all diseases that are essentially caused by the ageing process, if you look at the biology. And that means that by tackling by by understanding that aging process, we can potentially create medicines that could prevent or even um, you know, defer these diseases all at the same time. And that's something I just find really, really exciting. And that's, I guess, why I wrote a book about it. And there are lots of different theories about what happens in the body when we age, aren't there? So what is the, what is the main theory of what biologically causes aging? I actually think I'm going to disagree slightly with the question there. So there have been dozens and dozens of theories. There was even a joke, which might even have been accurate back when the joke was made, that there are more ageing theories than there were researchers to study them. And that's partly because ageing is just such a small field. There have been you know, a comparatively tiny number of researchers working on this historically, but also because there is this sort of vast burgeoning number of different theories about why we age. Is it caused by reactive molecules inside our bodies? Is it caused by damage to our DNA? Is it caused by our mitochondria, the little powerhouses inside our cells that generate all of our energy? And actually, all 
although quite a lot of them have you know either been disproven or just fallen by the wayside i think what we've got now isn't one overarching theory as to why we age but an understanding that it's a contribution from lots of different processes all acting together so in the book i break it down into 10 what i call the hallmarks of the aging process and these are the fundamental cellular molecular biological underpinnings of everything from you know the way that our cells age to the way that those cells group together into organs those organs age to the way that our whole body ages whole systems in our body so things like the immune system deteriorating with time and it's the combination of these 10 hallmarks that ultimately cause us to grow old and these things are very interrelated so you know it's something like the damage to the dna it's perhaps one of the most fundamental hallmarks this is the instruction manual in the center of every one of our cells but that can then go on to cause things like the cells themselves to age And then the aging of those cells can be partly what's behind the aging of the immune system. So all of these things are very interconnected. And what's most exciting about this is firstly, although 10 might sound like quite a big number, actually it's a tiny, tiny number when you compare it to the sheer volume of age-related diseases. You know, there are hundreds of kinds of cancer. There are dozens and dozens of different ways your heart could go wrong, your brain can go wrong in dementia. And yet we think that this comparatively small number of underlying processes is what gives rise to everything from cancer to, you know, basically wrinkles and gray hair. All of these things are caused by the same underlying biology. So as we understand, Understand it, hopefully we can do something about it. Right. So what is it exactly that does sort of give rise to the outer uh, sort of trappings of age that we see like grey hair and wrinkles? Well, it's a variety of different things. As I said, it's you know all of these different hallmarks acting together. And I think perhaps uh, the, the, the two most significant in terms of wrinkles, firstly, there's DNA damage. So our skin is a, a place where we get an awful, awful lot of damage to that instruction manual in the center of our cells. And that's because unlike most of the rest of our body, which of course is encased in our skin, our skin is subject to the vagaries of the external environment. And in particular, if you don't wear enough sunscreen, if you uh, spend a lot of time on the beach, or even if you've just been alive for 70 years, so you spent quite a lot of time outdoors, the ultraviolet rays from the sun can damage that DNA inside our skin cells and obviously the worst consequence of this a lot of people will have heard of is cancer because that's caused by mutations by damage to our dna essentially getting to a point where the cells start dividing uncontrollably but we actually understand that now that even if your cells don't get to the point of becoming a full cancer they can still start to behave in ways that are detrimental to the skin overall and another hallmark that's really really crucial to the aging of our skin is um is, is the degradation of the proteins inside our skin. So the reason that skin, when you're young, is you know is youthful, it's flexible, it's soft and supple, and you know not wrinkly, is because of proteins like collagen and elastin, which are these structural proteins. So these are molecules that hold together the skin. They maintain its structure. They make sure it's you know not too stiff, not too soft, but just right for maintaining a barrier. But unfortunately, as we get older, and one of the driving factors is again the UV, but there are also a number of other factors involved there. These proteins start to uh, get lower in number. They get less effective at their job. They get damaged themselves. And so it's a combination of all these different things that cause you to get wrinkly. But actually what's really interesting, as I said, is that, you know, these external signs, there's good reason to believe that they are, they're caused by these same biological processes. And that, that there are two ways to think about this. The first of which is actually how old you look is a really good indicator of how old you are biologically. So there was a fascinating study that was done a few years ago where they asked people to rate how old photographs of people looked. And what they found was that people who looked old for their age actually were old for their age biologically. They went on to get more diseases. They went on to die sooner than people who looked younger so that really shows us that you know there is something a bit more fundamental about wrinkles and gray hair than you might think they're not just cosmetic signs and the second thing is that because these hallmarks affect both the, you know the same hallmarks effectively affect both our skin and the other parts of our body i talked about the damage to the collagen in your skin being one of the things that drives the wrinkles as you get older damage to collagen is actually a fundamental driver of damage to your arteries and veins the little vessels inside your body that carry your blood around and so um, you know it's the stiffening of those that's one of the driving factors behind heart disease and other kinds of uh, you know cardiovascular problems that we get as we get older 
And so, um, you know, although I wouldn't necessarily go after these cosmetic things first, I actually wonder if some of them are going to be fixed almost as a side effect of other treatments. Because one of the researchers I was speaking to said she was obviously far more excited about having, you know, supple, youthful arteries and wrinkly skin than the other way around. But it might be that when she develops some of these therapies that can improve the quality of the collagen in our aging arteries, maybe some of those drugs will, you know, make it into our skin and improve the aged collagen there too. So, you know, you can potentially fix multiple things at the same time. And that's what we're so excited about with these anti-aging treatments. And so you mentioned earlier that there are some uh, lots of other theories of aging that have since been um, disproven. Could you could you take us through maybe some of the more well-known ones? Because I'm sure lots of people have heard some of these. I think one of the most famous, and actually one that sort of persists, sort of staggers on to this day, even though the biology has very much disproven it, is um, something called the mitochondrial reactive oxygen species theory. And people might not have heard of it in quite that ridiculous biological terms. Um, but we often hear about free radicals being something that causes aging. This is a term that a lot of people I think have heard, but might not necessarily know the chemistry of what's going on here. The idea is that when your body is um, is working, obviously you need to eat food, you need to breathe. Those are the t- two of the most fundamental things. And oxygen and things like sugars in the food that we eat are some of the most reactive chemicals that we come into contact with. And they have to be reactive. They have to have a lot of energy inside them because that's how we make the energy that allows our bodies to function. But unfortunately, it means that we have got these highly reactive chemicals inside us a lot of the time. And particularly oxygen is a voraciously reactive chemical. And that means that if your body, if your mitochondria that are generating the energy inside your cells, if they fumble one of these oxygens, they can create something called a free radical. And this is essentially a berserker chemical that goes around your cell, damaging anything it comes into contact with. And for a long time, it was thought that maybe the accumulated damage of, you know, fumbled oxygens throughout our whole lifespan are one of the things that caused the aging process. Now, unfortunately, we've since discovered that really isn't the case. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that. And actually, you know, with hindsight, that makes a lot of sense because life has been dealing with the consequences of free radicals for well, billions of years, you know, this is something that afflicted even the first oxygen using cells. And so accordingly, we've got lots of different ways that we use those free radicals for important processes inside the body. Actually, one of my favorites is that when your immune system uh, comes across a bacterial invader, they might bombard that bacterium with free radicals in order to kill it. So there are loads and loads of functions they use for signaling, they use for, you know, cells talking to each other, all kinds of different things. And uh, on a less fundamental level, we've got really, really good evidence. We've got huge trials that have involved you know, thousands and thousands of people taking things like vitamin C. So uh, these are supplements that are designed to be antioxidants. They soak up these free radicals without taking damage themselves. But unfortunately, if you take these supplements, uh, what we find people who take vitamin supplements, unless you've got a specific vitamin deficiency and your doctor has told you to you know, go out and take a particular supplement to correct that deficiency, these people don't live any longer. In fact, some of them even have an increased chance of death versus people not taking the supplements. It's not a massive risk. It's not like you're just you know, killing yourself instantly. But basically, if you take too much of an antioxidant supplement, um, your body's going to start compensating, producing more of these free radicals to carry on those essential processes to compensate for what you're doing. And it ends up not extending your life at all. So that's definitely one of the theories that was very, very, very popular but has fallen by the wayside. Wow and there's another one that you mentioned in your book about number of heartbeats and I actually saw this in a museum a few years ago about how the idea that all species have a fixed number of heartbeats. Fascinating idea isn't it? It's one of my favourite old theories and actually um, it's sort of in contrast to the free radical theory. It seems to be really quite broadly true it's fascinating so we, the, the the way it's often stated is that animals get a billion heartbeats and then they expire and this works remarkably well it's, it's not exactly a billion but if you look at something like a mouse it's its heart beats 500 times a minute 
And yet mice live, you know, an average of two or three years. So that's obviously they've got a very fast heartbeat. They race through their billion beats in no time at all. Well, the longer lived animals, something like a Galapagos tortoise, they can live to 150, maybe even 200 years old. And they've got a heart that beats just six times a minute. So if you work through, do the maths, well, actually both of those come out at about half a billion beats. And humans, if you work through, we get about 60 beats per minute if you're relatively healthy. Um, and that can then, you know, obviously we can live, you know, 80, 90 years or something like that. We get a substantially increased number of beats compared to some other animals. We get about 3 billion beats during our lifetime. Nonetheless, you know, a factor of, uh, you know, three or, three or six isn't that huge a deal in biology. Those are surprisingly tightly constrained numbers. And I don't think we really understand exactly what the underlying process is here. It's, it's probably down to something uh, that we, we often call in science a scaling law. So it's very well known that animals that are larger tend to live longer lives. And that's for a variety of different reasons. One of which is that they're just, you know, they're bigger, so they get eaten less often. And so therefore they can afford to evolve anti-aging defenses in a way that a smaller, more threatened animal can't. And it might be that bigger animals obviously have bigger hearts and those hearts pump more slowly. And so it might just be a sort of side effect of the, the, the basically the physics and the engineering of our bodies. But we haven't fully understood why this this bizarre observation, you know, seems to persist. It's really quite, it's, it's beguiling, isn't it? That this, we do seem to have this fixed number of heartbeats. Species do tend to age at different rates, but are there any species that don't age at all? Yeah, there are a surprising number of species that don't age at all. And actually, the Galapagos tortoise, the reason that's on the cover of my book is it's one of these ageless species. What do we mean by ageless? Well, so if, if you're a human, as I guess most people listening to this podcast probably are, then what that means is that you've got a risk of death that doubles about every eight years. So to sort of put that in more concrete terms, I'm uh, 36. That means my risk of not making my 37th birthday starting on my 36th birthday was about one in a thousand. And I like those odds, right? That means that on average, I'd live into my thousand and thirties on average if I've got a one in a thousand chance of dying every year. But unfortunately, of course, that isn't what happens. My risk of death doubles about every eight years. And so if I'm lucky enough to make it into my nineties, and of course, there's no uh, advance in medicine in the intervening time, my odds of death in one of the years of my nineties is going to be about one in six. It's that sort of life and death at the roll of a dice. And this is a very um, sort of visceral statistical way of encapsulating the aging process. We can say that, you know, how fast do humans age? Well, our risk of death doubles every eight years. But if you look at something like a Galapagos tortoise, well, its risk of death doesn't double. In fact, it stays completely flat once it's reached adulthood. It's constant with time. And so in a very real biological sense, these animals don't age. And obviously, you know, we're not just interested in these abstract, abstract statistical quantities. It's also interesting to look at um, how healthy these animals stay. And Galapagos tortoises do remain healthy throughout their lives. What you find is that... Um, you know, they, they, they don't get frail. They don't get um, any less reproductively active. They don't get any less cognitively active. They're just effectively as sprightly at 150 as they were at 50 years old, which is to say, obviously, they're not running around kicking a football. They are tortoises. But nonetheless, this lack of a decline, uh, you know, lack of increase of risk of death, lack of increase of risk of frailty, lack of increase of risk of diseases, this is very much something we as humans could aspire to. And the fact that there are in fact, quite a few animals out there that seem to display this property, which is called negligible senescence, is really encouraging to suggest you know, this isn't a biological impossibility. This is something that we as humans could strive for. So is there something sort of from the biological angle that we can learn from Galapagos tortoises and apply it to humans? Or is it just that it's innate to these sort of immortal species? I think the first thing to say is that it's going to be very, very tough because, you know, say, say we were to try and directly port whatever, you know, longevity hacks the Galapagos tortoise has into humans. The way we do that is, you know, we might observe their genes are a bit different to ours and maybe, you know, in some future where we've got gene therapy, we could start applying some of those genetic changes to ourselves. 
ultimately though we're going to end up you know closer and closer and closer until eventually we become tortoises you know they, they've obviously got a set of adaptations that work very well as a tortoise but might not necessarily work so well in the context of a human you know we're warm-blooded we're a very different kind of animal however i think what's really cool about these things firstly they are a proof of principle and secondly there are some things that we can learn from them and particularly i think from the longer lived and in fact some negligibly senescent mammal species so there's an animal called a naked mole rat and these are very strange looking little creatures that they're relatively closely related to rats and mice they're rodents just like they are but they live in burrows underground in these enormous colonies they're quite a strange species and they look like i think they look a little bit like a penis with teeth to be perfectly honest they're not the most beautiful creatures um but these wrinkly little sausages they've got this incredible property that they can live to about 30 years old um so you know as i said a mouse lives about two or three years a rat sort of the same amount of time yet this very closely related species lives substantially longer and again they seem to be negligibly senescent they don't get any more frail they carry on being reproductively active they scurry around these little burrows just as quickly right up until their very final years and so perhaps you know these animals that are a bit closer to us we can start to understand i think the other thing is that by looking at these creatures that do age more slowly we can learn more general things about the biology of aging so it's the case that, you know these 10 hallmarks i talked about they the, the sort of clock that these hallmarks provide effectively ticks more slowly in animals that are negligibly senescent and that gives us some confidence that these hallmarks are genuine sort of universal aspects of the aging process and not just weird quirks of biology we've happened across and what about at the other end of the spectrum, species like the mayfly that live for a very, very short amount of time? I think that's, yeah, we can certainly try and avoid whatever biological problems they have. I think some of them, some of these species that live for a very short period of time, they often do it for very strange reasons that you know aren't necessarily that applicable to human biology. For example, um, there are some insects that live an incredibly short time and literally don't have a mouth, which means they're unable to feed themselves so they can just end up dying of starvation. And I think what this tells us more broadly, actually, is about the evolutionary history of ageing. So, you know, people often think this is strange because evolution is survival of the fittest. What evolution tries to do as it builds an organism is build organisms that are the best, the fastest, the strongest, the fittest for their environment. So what on earth could be fittest about a process of progressive degeneration with time or what on earth could be fittest about you know living for a couple of hours or a couple of days and having this sort of big bang of reproduction and then dying as in the case of a, an animal like a mayfly. And I think what's really important is to look at the evolutionary context in which these arose. So I've already mentioned this in terms of the size of animals. Animals that are bigger tend to live for longer. And one of the reasons for that is because they're less uh, predated upon, they're less eaten. And actually, you know, let's let's think about the mice versus another animal, this, another very long-lived but closely related animal, the bat. Um, a mouse, it can live two or three years, I already mentioned it, in the lab. And actually, they probably live more like six months to a year in the wild. And that's because mice, you know, there are lots of cats out to eat them with, you know, sharp, sharp claws. There are lots of diseases that can kill them. Um, they're also just tiny little animals so they can die of exposure they can just get so cold that they just end up dying effectively of that and so that means there are loads of natural ways that a mouse can come to an end that are sort of external to its body so imagine your evolution trying to put together the perfect mouse you're not going to bother investing in incredible perfect anti-cancer defenses that would allow the mouse to live to 30 with not a trace of cancer because the mouse is going to be dead at six months anyway because it's going to have been eaten and so what evolution does in the case of something like a mouse is it prioritizes really rapid reproduction you want to grow up fast you want to you know pop out as many kids as you can in that in that first six months to a year in order that your genes get passed on. Whereas if you imagine you're an animal like a bat, now the obvious difference between bats and mice is that bats can fly. And it isn't the sort of pure joy of aerial living that means bats can then live to you know, 30 or 40 years old. It's the fact that they're, because they're up in the air, they're at much less risk of predators. And that means they've had time to evolve those evolutionary defenses. You know, that it, It's worth evolution putting some effort into building their bodies carefully in such a way as to avoid heart disease or cancer or whatever it is that you know, goes on to kill them. And that means that because they're killed less by external sources, they can afford to invest in those anti-aging 
anti-aging defenses. I think understanding that aging isn't some evolutionary adaptation. It's not something that evolution has chosen for us. It's just sort of a screw up because animals that uh, are killed more easily by other means lose those adaptations that allow them to live longer. I think that again gives us some optimism. This isn't something we're going to have to be cleverer than evolution in order to solve. We just need to fix some of the mistakes that evolution has introduced because we can get killed by other things. And so back to humans now, as you mentioned earlier, sort of different people age at different rates and how much of that is genetic and how much of it is environmental? It's a great question and it's a very hard question. There's still a little bit of controversy about answering this but I think what's what might be surprising to a lot of people is how little of the contribution is genetic. The, the, the controversy is basically how small is that genetic contribution and um, depending on exactly how you do the maths you can say this contribution is anywhere between maybe 5 and 25%. So this is a very small amount of what's called the variance in human longevity is driven by uh, the, the age of your parents. Now, there's an optimistic note on this for most of us, which is that how long your parents lived, you know, you needn't see that as a ceiling on your own lifespan. If your parents lived to 70 or 80, there's a huge amount of that is that is within your own control. Because, you know, even on the largest genetic contribution I just mentioned, 75% of how long you live is down to lifestyle and obviously, unfortunately, luck, which not you know none of us can do anything about. The place where this ceases to be the case is in people who live an incredibly long time. So if you look at uh, people like centenarians, so that's people who make it to 100, suddenly there does seem to be a much larger genetic contribution. Now, if you've got a grandfather or a grandmother who lived to 100, then you know you should start getting a little bit excited because that does seem to run in families. And if you've got a parent or a sibling who makes it to 100, you've got about a 10 times greater chance than someone in the rest of the population of doing the same. So there clearly is some potential for us to mine the genetics of these incredibly you know, super old, super fit, healthy people in order to try and understand what allowed them to get to those, those incredibly advanced stages. We often talk about people dying of old age. Is there an actual biological thing that is dying of old age? I think this is a bit of a myth that's been um, perpetuated for because for, for many, many years, this was actually a perfectly legitimate thing to write on a death certificate as a doctor. You know, if someone got to 80 and they just died in their sleep, they wouldn't bother investigating exactly what had killed them. But I think what we've come to understand is that, you know, it, it's although there is a sense in which 90% of people in the rich world die of old age. You know, that's that's the percentage of uh, deaths that are caused by aging. And that's one of the reasons that I call it our greatest humanitarian challenge because it just, you know, it's the single largest cause of death around the world. Actually, you know, what goes on to kill you is that as you get older, you get a higher risk of these diseases because of all these changing hallmarks in your body. You get a higher risk of cancer, higher risk of heart disease, higher risk of dementia. These diseases can take years to develop, but eventually one of them becomes severe enough that it can take your life. And so ultimately everyone does die of some specific disease. It's just that that disease will probably have been made substantially more likely by the aging process. Is there a biological limit to how old humans can be? I think this is a, another fascinating and controversial question. I really think it depends what you mean by it. So I think in the sense that current humans, if I could give you the absolutely optimal diet, lifestyle, you know, the perfect, you, you, you could be lucky enough to have the perfect genetics and so on, there probably is some kind of limit as to how long you can live. Because, you know, humans evolved in a certain environment, there'd be absolutely no need for a prehistoric human to make it to 122, which is the uh, you know, current human lifespan record. So clearly there is sort of an evolutionary, um, you know, timer built into all of us that's going to eventually cause our bodies to wear out. However, what I'm really optimistic about is that we can start to sidestep some of these things. We can start to make some tweaks that evolution wasn't able to make because there were no you know, 100-year-old humans to optimize in the evolutionary environment. And because they'd all reproduced long, long ago, they'd passed on their genes long, long ago. So there was no sort of scope for evolution to try and tweak those people. Um, and I think that by you know coming up with therapies that can reduce some of these hallmarks and defer these diseases later and later into the future... I don't know how long we're going to live because it depends how fast some of these therapies are developed, but I don't really think there is a fundamental limit on human lifespan. 
And, you know, you can get that idea by looking at the Galapagos tortoises again. All these negligibly senescent animals, their risk of death doesn't change with time. And so, although it's very hard to predict when we could get to that kind of state for humans, it's not something that's biologically impossible. It's just a question of how clever we can be and how quickly and lucky we can get, you know, developing these therapies. So is it a case that we age because we evolved to age or we aged because we haven't evolved not to age? I think it's more the latter, to be honest, because you find with these negligibly senescent species or species that just live a long time, they're in an environment or they're in a situation where it's necessary for them to, or where it's, it's okay for them to live a long time. You know, then they're not going to get killed by external factors, or it's really, really important that they stay alive at older ages. And I think a really good example actually of this is fish. So there are some species of fish that are negligibly senescent. They've got a risk of death that doesn't change with time. And it's probably the case that this is because of their reproductive strategy. So in a lot of animals, the way that reproduction is done is, it's, you know, and this is true in humans as well, it's primarily done by the youthful members of the species. But in fish, um, you get fish get bigger and bigger and bigger as they get older. And actually, it's the biggest, oldest female fish that are most important contributors to the reproductive uh, system in, in, that, in those species. They're actually called boffs, which stands for big, old, fat, fertile female fish. I think I've got that right. So there's a lot, lot of Fs in there. Um, and these, these massive matriarchs, they can put out you know, dozens of times more eggs than a, a, a young female. The eggs are often more successful. So you know, it's more likely that they're going to grow up into healthy, healthy young fish as well, and so they've just got a very different population structure to something like you know a, a humans or you know rats or mice or whatever living on land, and that means suddenly evolution has a huge incentive to keep these pinnacles of reproductive fitness alive. They want to keep them alive as long as possible, and that's probably why evolution has invested in the defences that allow those fish to carry on living and you know, carry on reproducing into very, very old age. Whereas a human, you know, by the time you're thirty in prehistoric times, you've probably reproduced and you're basically on the scrap heap as far as evolution is concerned because you passed on your genes and so it doesn't bother investing in those defenses that you know i guess in the modern world all of us wish it would put a little bit more time into and finally what three things do you think we all should know about the science of aging I think the three most important things are, firstly, what I started out by saying, that this is our biggest humanitarian challenge. Two thirds of deaths around the world are caused by diseases that are caused by ageing, essentially. And that means it's the single biggest cause of death. I'd also argue the single biggest cause of suffering in um, you know, for our species. And therefore, it is our biggest humanitarian challenge. And it's vital that we do something about it. The second thing is that we understand or are certainly beginning to understand in quite a lot of detail how it is that we age. We've got these, this idea of the 10 hallmarks. There are a few different theories we're converging upon. And that means that we've got the biological understanding to start to think about doing something about it. And thirdly, that these are treatments that are very much on the horizon. We've already got treatments in clinical trials in several cases for particular hallmarks. And the idea is that by, you know, by reversing these hallmarks, by, by slowing down the rate at which certain things accumulate and so on, we can defer or potentially prevent a whole range of these age-related diseases. So this is a really exciting time. This isn't sci-fi. And I just think that this is something we all need to know a lot more about in order that we can spread the word, you know, get investment to the level it's needed and try and get some of these therapies into humans as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Dr. Andrew Steele. If you want to know more about ageing, check out his book, Ageless. Or to hear him tell me about the exciting treatments that could stop us from getting old altogether, head over to Instant Genius Extra, available only on Apple Podcasts. The new year issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is on sale this week. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. 